My name is Paul, or as the Americans might say, Paul. <laughs> When I came here six years ago, the last thing I expected to have issues with, the last thing, would be simply saying my name to Americans. And it's got to the point where, you know, if I'm in Starbucks or anywhere where they ask for your name, for your order, I just say Jeff. Because <laughs> the number of times that I went through saying, Paul, and they would say, Paul, and I, <laughs> I tried it with an American accent, and it just feels wrong, and I just say, it's Jeff. <laughs> and, my, and my kids are like, Dad, you're not called Jeff. <laughs> my name is Paul. You can call me Jeff if you like. Um, as I say, we've been here six years in America. You can hear I'm not from around here. Uh, landed at Grace Church that first Sunday. Uh, I think even in this room. I'm just looking for my wife to confirm that. Uh, does faith builders meet in this room? Yes. One up here? Yes. Here. So we arrived in America and faith builders, and we didn't know this, had furnished our apartment for us. We were this poor seminary family, and we thought we were arriving to an apartment with, you know, like a bed and a table, and the apartment was furnished. And the cupboards were full of food and meals were cooked, and it was just incredible. So we came to this room and visited the Faith Builders Fellowship Group to say a big thank you to them. Um, six years on, here we are, married to Laura, and we have six small children. Uh, all of their birthdays are in the summer, except for one. My son is Christmas Day. He was born Christmas Day. But all of the other kids are in the summer, and so it just feels like one birthday every week or something at the moment. <laughs> Last week, our oldest turned 10 and our youngest turned one. So nine years apart. They were born two calendar days apart. And uh, it just makes for a very busy time at home, as you can imagine. Three of them were born here in the States. We arrived with three, and now we have three American citizens in our family. They snuck in somehow. So <laughs> we have this pile of passports that are all different colors. And when we get to the airport, whether it's in London or LAX, the, the guy there is always confused when we lay all these passports out. Like, are all of them yours? Why have these got American passports and these ones British? Uh, but it's a lot of fun. Um, I teach over at the seminary. That's my job. That's what they pay me for. Uh, I often say it is pretty much the best job in the world. I study the Bible every day. I show up to a classroom. I tell students what I've learned. And they pay me a salary for it. So it's pretty good. It's a blessing. Um, and teach a number of subjects. I teach the survey classes, so when the students come into seminary, they have to take three classes that basically walk them from Genesis through to Revelation, and I have the, the privilege of teaching that. Uh, as the professor, it's just incredible to, to be able to teach through the Scriptures from beginning to end every year, and every year just be reminded of how glorious God's plan of redemption is. And then some other classes. Last year, uh, I taught some Greek And if you were to ask me why a seminar on assurance, the answer is because I was teaching Greek. Uh, what do I mean by that? If you know anything about the Greek language and biblical Greek, you'll know that first-year Greek students always work through the book of 1 John. Uh, 1 John is basically the easiest Greek in the New Testament. So that's where we always begin, whatever Greek class you're in, and you work through the text of 1 John. And I'd been, uh, I've worked through the book a number of times now, and it was last year when I was teaching through it, I thought, why do I keep working through this book in various contexts, and I'm never doing any sermon prep 
in the book. For all this work I'm doing for the classes, I may as well start to put some sermons together. So I thought to do that, and, um, and actually in August through September, I have the opportunity to preach a six-part series in First John in evening church. So uh, come along to hear that. Today we are going to be there. Do turn to First John in your Bibles if, if you have a Bible. I'm not going to be today giving you a, a detailed exposition of the text. That will come in the sermon series, uh, but it will be something of a foundation for us today as we think through assurance. Now, of course, there's a, there's a better answer than, than the one I just gave you for why I'm doing this seminar. It's not simply because I was in First John in my Greek class. Um, and before I get to that reason, let me make a book recommendation. If you want to do some more reading on the topic of assurance, the best book I have found on the issue uh, is a book by Sinclair Ferguson, and it's a book called The Whole Christ, The Whole Christ. I remember when I heard of that book, it was published a few years ago, before I'd even read it, it was one of those books you just fall in love with the title. You know when a book's got a really good title, and I just thought, whatever that book's about, I really want to read it because I love that title, The Whole Christ. Ironically, it's not about assurance. (laughs) So if you read the book, it's $7 in the book tent, by the way, $7. So just pick it up. Most of the book is about the issue of legalism and antinomianism and what those two issues are, and he shows so skillfully how essentially they're the same issue. Um, And what's really fun about the book is that the whole discussion is grounded in a historical debate that happened hundreds of years ago in a small village in Scotland. And he's kind of walking you through that debate and then showing you the theology of it. So it's just a really good read. And then at the end, last two or three chapters, he finally gets to the topic of assurance. And those chapters are just so worth you reading. They're the best I've found any discussion on this issue. He deals with it so uh, precisely. And it helped me immensely to to understand this difficult topic. So there's my book recommendation for today. Uh, Okay, now here's the proper answer. Why are we doing a seminar on the issue of assurance? I think the, um, the blessing of assurance is one of the richest blessings available to the Christian. I think it's one of the richest blessings available to the Christian. So Thomas Brooks, the Puritan writing 350 years ago, he said to be in a state of grace, talking about salvation, to be in a state of grace makes a man's condition safe, happy, and sure. But the knowing and the seeing of himself to be in that state, talking about assurance, the knowing and the seeing of himself to be in that state, that is what renders his life comfortable and sweet. To to have assurance of your faith, to, to be confident that you are in Christ, it changes everything about your Christian walk. It, it brings about more joy in your worship. It brings about more intimacy in your prayer. It brings about more zeal in your service. It brings about more humility in your fellowship. Everything that we aspire to as Christians can be found in abundance when you are confident that you are saved, that you are in Christ. So I think it's one of the richest blessings available. However, here's the other side of it. It is one of the most complex issues in the Christian faith. 
It is one of the most complicated issues in the Christian faith. It is anything but a one-dimensional problem. Assurance is a multifaceted issue. It's an issue of self-awareness, fundamentally. When somebody asks, how can I know that I'm saved, they're asking, how can I be sure, how can I, I always think of it in terms of stepping outside of yourself and looking at yourself, how can I be sure that I have indeed made a valid profession of faith in Christ? And as soon as you understand that assurance is an issue of self-awareness, you can see why it's so complex. Uh, all of us have a history. Whether the Lord saved you at age 3 or 30 or 90, we all have a history. We, we bring something to the table in our Christian walk. And our experiences affect our understanding of assurance. So it might be that you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that assurance is not available, that you cannot have assurance. And if that's the environment in which you were raised, and then the Lord saves you later on, well, I can understand that assurance is a really difficult thing for you, because you were trained to understand that it's not possible, and here I am saying it is available. So we've all got this history that we bring to the table. In addition to that, we've all of us got our own personalities. Every one of us is different, and you might be someone who just naturally is nervous, uh, naturally is doubting, you might be a warrior, and I can understand that if that is your disposition, then you question the fact uh, as to whether your profession of faith is indeed valid. In addition to that, history, personality, we will have our circumstances, our present-day circumstances. And I'm aware that there may be many people in this room right now who are facing particular trials that you're facing afflictions, that things aren't going the way you'd like. And when things grow dark around us, we can very quickly start to question what's going on with our relationship with the Lord. And our circumstances can be another reason why we start to question whether we're saved. Assurance can go up and down throughout the Christian life, oftentimes due to the external situation that we're facing. With that, I would just say I am aware that in this seminar in a room like this, quite possibly, quite probably, there are many of you that are struggling with assurance right now. Uh, I prayed this morning, and I have been praying, that this session would be of some help to you. Assurance is available. It is something that is available to every Christian. It's not promised, but it's available. Now, before we kind of jump into trying to understand it a bit more, let's just simply examine what it is. What is assurance? What do we keep talking about? Nine times out of ten, when somebody comes to me and says, I just don't know if I'm saved, I'm struggling with the issue of assurance, nine times out of ten, the question that they're not asking is whether Christ is sufficient to save. That is not normally the question that's being asked when people struggle with assurance. Most of the time, when somebody's struggling with this issue, the question that they're asking is, have I believed in the Christ who saves? Have I believed in the Christ who saves? The Puritans had, I think, just a wonderful response to this uh, issue. The way they would respond to this question is essentially to try and force a man to look at 
the nature of salvation, or more specifically, the way in which the Bible talks about salvation from both a, a, a godly, eternal perspective and then from man's perspective. So if you think about it, the Bible presents salvation uh, on the one hand from God's perspective. And that's where we read about salvation um, you know, in terms of eternal life and uh, being raised to newness of life in Christ, and being born again, uh, receiving a new heart. These are actually very abstract concepts. We're used to this because we show up to church, and this is the kind of language we use. It's very abstract to talk about salvation like that. I remember when I was unsaved, uh, around the age of 20 at college, I was invited to an evangelistic talk. It was my friend, it was my roommate that was giving the talk, so I had to go. Uh, so I went along, having not grown up in church, and I listened to him present the gospel, and he talked about the gospel and salvation that day, specifically in terms of eternal life. And honestly, I was listening to him thinking, this guy is nuts. I'd never heard anyone talk about eternal life before, and here's this guy, my friend, saying, if I buy into this Christianity thing, he's telling me, I will never die. That is really abstract. And we're used to it because we show up every Sunday and talk about salvation in these terms, but it just, it's, not a, it's not a given. Now, the flip side of it is that the Bible talks about salvation from man's perspective, and then it is incredibly simple. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's it. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's really simple. And then think about what Jesus says in terms of how much of that kind of faith you need. He says you need a mustard seed of that kind of faith and you're saved. Now, the reason I talk about all of that is because the Puritan response was this. The, 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 the worried disciple comes to the, the Puritan pastor and says, I'm struggling with assurance. I don't know if I'm saved. The Puritan responds and says, the Bible says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus? And the counselee says, well, yes, I have. And the Puritan responds, then you are saved, be assured. And that was their counselling session. And I know that if you're struggling with assurance here this morning, uh, you're thinking, thanks a bunch, that's not a great help to me. Um, and I understand that, I understand that. There is some value in what they were doing, and, I, and I'll come back to that in a bit. There is some value in that answer. Uh, let's... Let's turn to 1 John and see what John has to say about the issue of assurance. Now, 1 John, five chapters, 120 verses, uh, it's all about assurance. It's the, the most sustained and the fullest um, treatise on the issue of assurance that we have. If you look at the very back of the book, chapter 5 and verse 13, John says, these things I've written to you in order that you might know that you have eternal life to the, to the ones who believe in the name of the Son of God. These things I've written to you 
who's the you, the ones that believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you might know that you have eternal life. Uh, That is John's overarching purpose statement for the letter. Now, actually, if you read 1 John, there are many times in the letter when he says, the reason I'm writing is for this. These things I've written is in order to. So he says that a number of times. I I believe that that last um, time it occurs, 5.13, is the overarching purpose statement of the book. A couple of reasons. Number one, what we know about is in the ancient world, when you write a letter, you often put your purpose statement at the very end of the book. So think about John's gospel, same author, the gospel. It's in chapter 20 at the very end that he says, this is why I've written these things so that you might believe, and in believing, you would have eternal life. His purpose statements at the end, same thing going on here. In addition to that, the historical context seems to suggest that this was his reason for writing. So the historical context, we understand, is that there's, there's a church and there's, a, there's a, um, a false teaching that had arisen within that congregation. The false teaching was distorting the person of Christ and therefore distorting the gospel of Christ. And then these false teachers who'd been spreading this doctrine left the church. So in 1 John, we read about the fact that they left us, they went out from us, and they went out from us because they were not of us. So they left the church. And most likely, they took some of the congregation with them. So the situation probably is, you know, you're showing up to church every Sunday, And you're aware that something's going on. You're aware that there's some kind of false teaching. And you know the elders are are trying to deal with it. And then the next Sunday you show up and one third of the room is missing. Or maybe even a half of the room is gone. And you're sat there looking at the people left, looking at each other. And you start to get really nervous. And you start to get worried. And you think, "Do, do they know something we don't know? Um, have, have they believed in the right message? And did we get it wrong? That issue of circumstances again. And John's writing to that group saying, I want to give you confidence. I don't want you to live a nervous and a worried Christian life. I want you to be sure of the gospel and the Christ in whom you've believed. And so he writes these five chapters with the purpose of giving them a certainty that they have indeed been saved, they are in union with Christ, and that they have eternal life. Now, look at the very beginning of the letter. Let's look at how it is John begins. People will often say, you know, I read 1 John and it's so repetitive. Uh, And I understand, it does seem like he's going around in circles, I would argue against that, and I think John is a masterful pastor and theologian. And I think when you really come to terms with the text and what he's trying to do with it, and you understand the issue of assurance, the complex issue of assurance, what you see, not repetition, but I think every paragraph, every new section, he's just attacking this issue from a slightly different angle. And so, look at how he begins the book, that which we... Uh, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we beheld and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen and we testify and we proclaim to you 
the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you in order that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you in order that our joy might be complete or made full. Um, I think that's a fascinating introduction. Keep in mind, chapter 5, verse 13, I'm writing to give you assurance. I think that is a fascinating introduction. If someone was to come to me today and said, I'm struggling with the issue of assurance, I would say, why are you struggling? Almost guaranteed they would respond with something like, you know, uh, there's just this sin in my life. And I just can't seem to get beyond it. And I've been a Christian 10 years now, I think, and I, I haven't seen any progress. Or they would say, you know, I'm struggling because I just don't see fruit in my life. I, I look at everyone else around me and, and I just don't see any kind of Christ-likeness in me. Or they might say something like, you know, I, I just don't feel like I'm in a relationship with God. It just doesn't feel any different for me. I don't seem to have that joy and happiness that I see other Christians have. And the counselor might respond to any of those with uh, questions that kind of further probe into it and then set about just trying to examine more closely that person's life. The counselor might respond and say, well, okay, let's just take that apart and let's just talk about your experiences. John, when he writes a letter to give assurance, he opens the letter with a paragraph that is absolutely nothing like that scenario. He opens the letter simply by setting forth Jesus Christ. Some people have said this is the most beautiful paragraph in the Greek New Testament. It is so incredibly rich so Christologically precise and dense, and that is John's opening gambit to give the believers assurance. So how do we understand it? How do we understand what it is that he's doing here? The first thing you need to understand is that assurance is the fruit of faith. If you're taking notes, that's probably the most important thing I'm going to say today. Assurance is the fruit of faith. So this thing that we're talking about this morning that we all want and we all desire after, it is the product of, it comes out of an expression of faith in Christ. And now you can understand why the Puritans, they knew what they were doing. They may have been blunt, but they start by saying, have you expressed faith in Christ? Assurance comes out of faith and you can't separate the two. Now, if that is the case, it stands to reason the very best thing you can do to nurture your sense of assurance is to feed your faith. If assurance comes out of faith, the very best thing you can do is not self-examination. We sometimes think self-examination is the sum total of of assurance for, for right or for wrong, whether you feel it or you don't, let's look at my life. 
We're going to get there, and it's part of the puzzle, but it's not the main piece of the puzzle. Assurance comes out of faith. The very best thing you can do to nurture your assurance is to feed your faith. How do you feed your faith? How about we look at the person of Jesus Christ? How about we look at the person who saved us? Uh, Murray Shane said, for every one look at self, there should be 10 looks at Christ. And he's, he's absolutely right. We need to focus on the one that saved us in order to feed our faith, knowing that one of the fruits of faith is assurance. Now, there's so much more we can say about these opening verses, but I want to skip that for now and talk very uh, practically about how we would feed our faith. I want to I talk very practically about what we might do in our daily life to simply feed our faith so as to nurture our assurance. Uh, God has given us means of grace. God has given us many channels by which he imparts grace to us, by which we can uh, feed our faith. The three primary means of grace are his word, prayer, and fellowship of the saints. There are many means of grace. So a Christian biography is a means of grace. We read it, we feel edified, encouraged. Uh, a Christian conference would be a means of grace. Um, a Christian song would be a, a means of grace. But the three primary means of grace, I always think about Hebrews chapter 10, and that's something of the theological center of that letter. And there the author says, let us draw near with confidence, that's prayer. He's let us hold fast the confession of faith, Arguably, that is the word, and let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. That's fellowship. And we see this pattern all the way through the New Testament. The primary means of grace that God has given us by which we feed our faith is the word, prayer, and fellowship with the saints. It's not uh, rocket science. It's really simple. If you're in any counseling scenario with me, well, first of all, I apologize. I'm sorry that it's come to this, that you've had to come to me for counsel. Uh, there are more competent counselors out there. If you're in a counseling scenario with me, and after you've given your, uh, what do they call their presentation issue. See, I can do this. The presentation issue, the counselors call it. This is what the issue is. If things aren't going right in your life, almost guaranteed, the first three questions I'm going to ask you are, tell me what your Bible reading looks like, tell me what your prayer life looks like, and tell me what your church attendance looks like. Because... Almost guaranteed, if things are coming off the rails in your life, you are neglecting the means of grace that God has given to you. We have to be diligent and disciplined to pursue these means of grace. Um, we're distracted. We're a distracted people. We have got to the stage somehow in our society where we don't think we can do life anymore unless we have a small computer in our pocket. Isn't that crazy? Nearly everyone in the room right now has a small computer attached to them. And it's almost like, I can't leave the house unless it's there. And as it vibrates or makes a noise, we're enslaved to it and we have to check it. We have to check it. And then there's the emails at work and, and all of the busyness of life just means we're a really distracted people. And we have lost, I'm convinced, the, the Christian discipline of meditation, sustained meditation. Um, 
to sit with God's word open, to read it, not for five minutes and not for 10 minutes, but to engage with the text over a period of time, to consider the truth that's being told to you, to turn it over in your mind, and to respond to God in prayer based upon that truth, to pray the truth back to God and to thank him for that truth. That is, I call it contemplative prayer or meditative prayer. It combines those first two means of grace, the word and prayer, and it feeds your soul. Just try opening 1 John, clear some time in your schedule. Think about that first paragraph. John shows us that which was from the beginning being the eternality of Christ and therefore invoking his deity. And then immediately in the same verse, he moves on to that which we have seen and heard and touched with the hands being the incarnation of Christ invoking his humanity. In one verse, he brings together the most mind-blowing doctrine that we have arguably about Christ, namely he was the God-man. And you can stop right there and just think, Think about the man that saved you being fully God and fully human. And you can just turn that over in your mind and you can praise God because when you start to tease it out, if either of those things is not true, the gospel collapses. The second he is not fully God, the gospel collapses. And the same is true of the, the fact that he was fully man. And you can feed your soul on that one verse of scripture, be nourished, feed your faith, understanding that as you make that a discipline in your life, Assurance starts to grow. Well, that's the first two means of grace, uh, and that's really my exhortation to, to be in the Word and to be in prayer seriously. And then the third would be fellowship with the saints, and I just want to encourage you, when the church doors are open, just resolve to be here. Um, you, you, you may not have seen it in the text because we just went over it so quickly. John brings in the concept of fellowship with him, and then says, but our fellowship is with God and the Son, the Father and the Son. And he's, he's hinting at there this aspect of our fellowship that I don't think we can truly fully understand, namely that when God's people gather together, the Godhead is made manifest. Uh, Jesus Christ is not here with us in the flesh. And yet in some kind of way that we can't fully understand, when God's people gather together, Jesus Christ is made manifest amongst us. So when the church doors are open, you just commit to showing up for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is because you understand how significant it is when God's people get gather together for your own soul. I love the fact that our worship center is, is curved in the seats because it means we can look at other saints singing. Back in, in the UK, if you go into really old churches, the pews are aligned facing each other. And it was for that very reason. They understood the value of Christian fellowship. And so they would sing in the service to each other. And there's an edification that goes on in your heart that you're probably not even aware of when it's happening. And I know life is busy and there's all these things on the calendar. And it's so easy to just not drive back down for evening service. But when you put the gathering of the church in the context of what's going on with your own soul and the nature of your assurance, you just commit to being here because it's one of the primary means of grace that God has given you. So what does John do in the first paragraph? He essentially encourages these believers to pursue a larger view of Christ, to feed their faith. Let's move on 
and see a slightly different angle, another uh, way in which he attacks the problem of assurance. So 1, 5 and following. Uh, this is the message which we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, by contrast, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just in order to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My children, these things I write to you in order that you might not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a supporter, a sponsor with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is our propitiation for our sin, and not only ours, but also for the whole world. And we'll stop there. Um, the structure of this passage is, is relatively straightforward. John lays out a, a thesis statement at the very beginning, God is light. He says that's the message that we heard. And by inference, I, I argue that it's a, a light that has invaded your heart. That's the message that has come to you, been received. God's light has invaded your heart. And he says there are, there are ramifications, there are implications from that invasion of light. If it truly has flooded your heart, then it changes the way you live. And what he does structurally, he lays out three claims, it would seem, of the false teachers. Three things they were saying. Um, they were saying that they have fellowship with him, but they walk in darkness. That was one of their claims. And he's just showing how ludicrous that is. He's saying, can you just see how those that have left your group, there's no way they're in union with Christ because look at the claim and how it doesn't match up to the thesis statement. And then what he does is he inserts three uh, opposite uh, truths. He says, but this is what I see to be true of you. So here's the crazy claim, and here's what I see to be true of you. He's trying to encourage them. And so he says, for example, in verse 7, if... We walk in the light. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And the understanding is that John is, is not trying to, you know, sift out anyone left in the congregation that's not truly a Christian, which is so often how we use First John, all these tests to say, okay, I'm going to weed some of you out. He's saying as an encouragement, there's those that have left, and this is what they look like, and, and the ones remaining... You know this to be true, and I know it to be true of you, that you walk in the light, and you have fellowship with him, and, and Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin, and he does that three times. Now, again, there's so much we could say about this text. One thing I want to draw your attention to is how for every encouragement, John makes reference to, either subtly or, or more explicitly, the cross of Christ. So verse 7, um, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Well, what is that walking in the light? It's not perfection, because then he goes on to say, and the blood of Jesus 
cleanses us from all sin. How does that happen? We understand it's by virtue of the cross. Uh, Next encouraging statement, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Again, the cross is in view there. And then the last encouragement, the the chapter division is not actually that helpful here. Chapter 2 and verse 2, where the section really ends, uh, we have an advocate. We have a, a supporter, a sponsor standing beside the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is our propitiation for our sin, very clearly the cross of Christ in view. So let's think about what John is doing strategically, writing a letter. I want to give you assurance. The first thing I'm going to do is set forth Jesus Christ, because what you need to do is feed your faith, primarily understanding that assurance grows out of faith. Consider the man that saved you. Secondarily, he moves his argument just a, a few degrees and says, consider the Christ that saved you, especially the crucified Christ and the doctrines that flow out of the cross. As you seek to feed your faith in order to nurture your assurance, of primary concern should be the cross of Christ and the doctrines that flow out of that cross. So Sinclair Ferguson talks in his book about the doctrines of regeneration, justification, adoption, and union with Christ. Maybe the four most central doctrines that are rooted in the cross, regeneration, justification, adoption, and union with Christ. Now, here's the danger, is that we get so complacent because we hear the gospel preached every week, and we hear that language so often, and it's just Christian talk, and we lose a sense of what God has accomplished for us at the cross. You need to pursue these doctrines. Regeneration. There was a time when your heart was stoned. And it didn't beat. And it was inclined away from God. You hated God. You were a stench in his nostrils. And what God did, according to his grace, not because of anything you had done, and not because of anything that you would go on to do, you were listed as an enemy of his. He opened up your chest. He took out that lump of stone and he put in a flesh-beating heart that in its DNA loves God. He gave you a heart which intrinsically loves God. And that heart beats to the glory of Christ. And though sin remains, and though you still make mistakes, and so there are many ways in which you dishonor the Lord because there is sin just dwelling in the flesh, you have fundamentally a different heart that now is not set against God as an enemy and a hater of him, but now is in love with him. And he did that for you. And that is the doctrine of regeneration. But beyond that, Beyond that surgery that was performed on you, there was also at one time a court hearing. This court gathered, and your name was at the center that day. It was the concern of the court that day to think about you and your standing with God. And the angelic hosts were gathered, and there was nothing hidden. Every sin that you had ever committed was known. 
the inclination of your heart as a hater of God was known. And as the angelic host look to God the Father who is in the judgment seat, they await for the announcement of his verdict. And it is so obvious. There's no one in the room that's, that's uncertain of the way this is going to go. They, they're not uncertain because everything's known about your wicked state. And then God says, innocent. The judge pronounces the verdict and he says, accepted. He says, this one gets to go free. And maybe that day there's, there's one of the angelic hosts that, that just wants to inquire further and says, but how can this be? We, we know everything about this one. And he says, it's because I crushed my son. My only son, I crushed him. And so there's nothing left now. There's no wrath left for this one. In fact, the judge goes further and says, not only is he forgiven, not one offense is going to be counted against him. He says, actually, he's gloriously righteous. And again, this this question that says, but how can that be? And he says, well, when I crushed my son, I took off his robe of righteousness and I actually put it on this one. And so he stands justified. And beyond that regeneration, justification, the court's dismissed and the angelic hosts leave and, and you're left standing there just in absolute disbelief of what happened and you turn to leave and then you hear, you hear God and he calls out to you before you leave and the funny thing is he doesn't call out your name and he doesn't call out... Uh, you know, court attendee, the thing that you hear him call is my son, my daughter. And you're confused because you know you're the only one left there. And you turn around and he says, look, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're declared righteous, and you're in my family now. You're in my family. From now on, would you address me as father? Would you come to me as a son, as a daughter? And whatever experience you've had of an earthly father, just know that I will never let you down. And then, beyond that, he says one more thing. I've actually knit your soul together with your brother, Jesus Christ. And now, he being the king of the world, you are in union with him and any benefit that comes by virtue of who he is, 
it will overflow into your life. You know, he's going to come back and he's going to reign on earth one day. And because now I've knit your soul together with him, you're going to reign with him. And on and on and on and on. Regeneration, justification, adoption, union with Christ. These are the primary truths that flow out of the cross. And we have to pursue them. We have to give our attention to them. Here's where I would argue that we all struggle with assurance. You came this morning maybe as someone who says, you know what, praise the Lord, I don't struggle with assurance. Maybe you've been confident of your salvation from day one. And of course, don't misunderstand me, we're grateful for that blessing. But the problem, I think, is that we often think about assurance in a, in a very... Um, we think about it in the wrong way. We ask the wrong question. So somebody comes to me and says, I'm struggling with assurance. What do you mean by that? Maybe they would say, you know, I just don't know if I'm saved. I just don't know that my sins are forgiven. I'm just not sure that I'm going to heaven. We think about assurance in a very small way, and I think this comes about through a, a reduction of the gospel itself that happened over the course of the last hundred years. What you see with primarily huge evangelistic rallies, preaching the gospel, wonderful works, and I'm sure many people genuinely say through those. But what happened over time is that the gospel was reduced to simply a transactionary affair. Put your faith in Christ, sins are forgiven, and we're good. And of course, forgiveness of sins is the entrance into the gospel. The gospel is far bigger than we can get our heads around. Forgiveness of sins is one aspect of it that gets us entrance into a relationship with God. And I think not that I've seen anyone kind of tease this relationship out. As we reduce the gospel over the course of the last hundred years, so also that's affected our understanding of assurance. And so now we ask the question, how can I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I know that I'm saved? My sins are forgiven. And we would do far better to ask the question, what does it mean to be in union with Christ? What does it mean to be in a relationship with God? And here is where I would argue all of us, whether we understand it or not, struggle with assurance. By that, I mean there is not one person in this room who has fully explored the riches of what it means to be in a relationship with God. There is none of us that fully understands the glory of being in union with Jesus Christ. And though you may not doubt your salvation and where you're going to be on the last day, we all of us must pursue a fuller knowledge of our relationship with Christ. Understanding that that will bring about more joy in worship, more zeal in service, humility in fellowship, and on and on it goes. Okay, we need to move on. Time is, time is marching, it's escaping us. Uh, 2, 3 through 11. John says, um, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep our commandments. The one that says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And um, where well, I've just lost my line there. Oh, and by this, 
is not in the truth, is the sense. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, the one who says that he abides in him, ought to walk just as this one walked. Beloved, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning, and the old commandment is the word that you heard. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is fading and the light is the true light is already shining. The one who says that is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Uh, the one that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness. He walks in the darkness, and he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, we finally get to the issue of obedience, it would seem. Again, I'm still going to argue that actually John's trying to encourage them and not saying, I see disobedience in you. He's actually trying to encourage them and saying, this is true of you, and the false teachers were doing something else. But granted, there's an implied imperative here, an implied command Uh, namely to obey God's word and to love each other. They're the two pillars of John's um, Christianity. Not that it's any different from anywhere else in the New Testament, but the themes he majors on are obedience to the word and love for the brothers. Um, A high level of assurance is not compatible with a low level of obedience. A high level of assurance is not compatible with a low level of obedience. You will not enjoy assurance if there is sin ongoing in your life. The Holy Spirit will not be pleased to testify to your soul that you are in Christ if there is ongoing sin in your life. And that makes perfect sense. If you play out that scenario to the very end, if you live a disobedience life to the very end, even though you say, I'm a Christian, on the last day, Jesus is going to say, your life never showed that you're a Christian. And in fact, you've evidenced yourself to be unsaved. And so it makes perfect sense that if you are pursuing sin, at that moment in time, the Holy Spirit will not give you a sense of assurance. High levels of assurance are not compatible with low levels of obedience. However, listen carefully, the way in which we fix that problem is not to say you have to obey more in order to enjoy assurance. The way in which we fix that problem is not to say, okay, there's sin in your life and the Bible tells me that high levels of assurance are incompatible with low levels of obedience. You need to obey more in order to enjoy assurance more assurance. The way I say it is that obedience and assurance are friends. Obedience is not the parent of assurance. Obedience doesn't beget assurance. Obedience doesn't give birth to assurance. They're friends. It's not a parent-child relationship, but actually both of them, obedience and assurance, are fruits of faith. Both of them arise out of faith. And so here we are back at square one. If you want to enjoy assurance, you need to feed your faith. If there is disobedience in your life, 
Start by pursuing a larger view of Christ. Don't mishear me. I am not saying that obedience doesn't matter. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a fight in every Christian's life for holiness. We must beat our body into submission. You need to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye and do whatever it takes to get yourself under God's word in obedience. But obedience is not the parent of assurance. And this is where we get it so wrong so often in in counseling scenarios. I heard somebody say assurance is like a um, three-wheeled bicycle, uh, commonly called a tricycle. And uh, the front wheel, a big wheel, is faith. The back two wheels, which are much smaller, are obedience and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And what we do is we try and take that back wheel and put it on the front as if that's the primary concern. Self-examination will only get you so far. It's a worthwhile pursuit. The Bible commends us to examine ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith, but it will only get you so far. You need to start at square one, which is to pursue a larger view of Christ, understanding that, yes, obedience and assurance are best friends. And if you pursue sin, assurance will quickly disappear. And I think... John is even tapping into that logic in this text. Look again at verse uh, 6. He says, The one who says he abides ought to walk as this one walked, as he walked, namely Jesus Christ. We'll hear again possibly some repetition. John just told us that if you make a claim like this, then you need to be obedient. Your life needs to match up with it. So the question is, well, why then is he repeating himself again? I don't think it's mere repetition. I think he's changing the angle again, and he's showing us, he's bringing into view Jesus Christ. He's purposely restating that principle that if you make the claim, your life needs to match up with it, but he's doing it in such a way that as the reader, yet again, we're reminded of the person of Christ. 1 John is one of the most Christological letters in the New Testament. He's just showing us Jesus over and over and over again. Why? Because the aim of the letter is to give his readers assurance. Okay, what would be the main hindrances to assurance? So we've talked about pursuing a larger view of Christ. We've talked about the doctrines that flow out from the cross. And we've talked about the nature of obedience. The hindrances to assurance would be primarily, I think of them in terms of internal and external. Internal meaning things going on in your heart that might cause you to doubt, and external meaning things going on around you. The external we've probably covered in one way or another. They would be your circumstances. Uh, Though we don't preach the prosperity gospel here, we all nurture it in our hearts to some degree. We all believe that because I'm a Christian, God should give me a good life. It's in there. And how quickly that doctrine can come to the fore when things don't go our way. And that's when we start to question whether we are in right standing with God. Am I really accepted by God because this is happening to me? Circumstances are not a measure of assurance. Uh, Closely related afflictions. Your circumstances just personal afflictions, health issues, um, miscarriages, things that happen in a broken, sin-cursed world, they're not a measure of your standing with God. Now, God can discipline a believer. 
He can discipline a believer, but it's always with the purpose of bringing them to a, a, a better state of, of standing with him, that, a better walk, a better um, level of obedience in their life. It's not an indication that he doesn't accept you, that you're no longer in union with him. And then the third external would be, as I've already said today, neglecting the means of grace. Do not neglect the means of grace that God has given to you. Read the scripture, seek communion with God, and show up to church. It is so simple. Okay, internal, a little bit more complicated. What might be going on in our hearts to rob us of our assurance? Well, one is that all of us are prone towards a works-based relationship, a works-based salvation. We have this compass in our heart that keeps wanting to reset to a north that says, I need to work to earn God's favor. You can't work to earn God's favor. We're saved by why the doctrines of grace are so important to return to over and over again, to remind ourselves, this is all of him and not of me. Because the tendency over time is always to try and earn God's favor. And if you're trying to earn God's favor, then who knows whether you're saved or not? It calls the whole issue of salvation into question. You know, if he's going to say you've done enough, that is exactly what the Catholic Church teaches. So faith works relationship. Another is that we are all suspicious of God. We tend to be suspicious of God. I think this is even knit into the Genesis 3 narrative. Uh, think about that encounter with Adam and Eve and the serpent. The very first thing that the serpent does is to undermine the integrity of God. The first thing he does, besides simply trying to get these guys to eat of the fruit and to disobey, he's, he's, he's undermining the character of God. Did God really say? Let me just question his goodness. Let me question what he was doing with you there. Let me make you suspicious of him. And as Adam and Eve sinned and pursued that sin, I believe there's a suspicion of God that's then introduced into the human heart and is there forevermore until Christ returns. This is why it's a really good thing to do to study the character of God on a regular basis. I mean, there are so many good books out there simply setting forth the attributes of God. And we need to remind our fickle hearts of who God truly is. When I was uh, serving on the submarines, you get this small locker. And it really is, I mean, that's about the size of it. And you open it, and anything you can get in there, that's what you're allowed to take away with you on the three- to four-month deployment. So I would just fill my locker with Christian books, knowing that boredom is the biggest enemy down there. And um, knowing God, I read when I first got saved, and in the opening, in the preface or the introduction, he makes mention of this other book. And he says, few people would ever give the time and energy to read Stephen Charnock's Attributes of God. And I read that, and it was like a red rag to a boy. I was like, okay, I'm going to read it. And the submarine patrol gave me opportunity to do it. Two volumes, at least at the time. I think they've combined it into one now. Huge. Small print, page after page after page, hundreds of pages on every attribute of God. And I read that over the course of three months, and it changed my understanding of God. It made me realize I did not know the God that I claimed to serve. And it's a book that's on my shelf, and I regularly go back to it because we do need to remind ourselves of the true character of God to, f to fight the suspicion that is in our hearts that would cause us to doubt him. 
that would cause us to doubt the promises that he has given to us in Scripture. We tend to uh, doubt the fact that our justification is accomplished now. So another tendency in our heart is that we tend to think that God's declaration of justification is yet future. And that when we get there, that's when it will be made, and I think he's going to say that I'm justified, whereas the biblical truth is it has been made at the point of salvation, never to be changed, which means right now, this very minute, God is declaring that you are accepted, that he keeps pronouncing into your life you are fully accepted, justified, declared righteous. Right now, oceans and oceans and oceans of God's love is being channeled into your life. God could not love you any more than he does right now. And it's not because you showed up to church today. It's not because you read your Bible every day this week. It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he has made that declaration at a definite point in history, and it's never going to change. And we tend to think it remains to be seen whether we're justified. And then the last one would be that we, we aren't certain that we have indeed uh, been given the victory over sin. So if you go on in 1 John, he talks about the, the conquerors, the overcomers, us. Because we've been knit together with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, we now have a different relationship to sin. Sin still carries on in our life because there's sin in the flesh. But remember, your heart now is one that loves God. You have a different heart altogether. You're a new creation. And though there may be manifestations of sin in your life, you have a fundamentally different relationship to sin. And you have been given the victory. And then the responsibility we have is to strive towards holiness for the rest of our lives. Okay, time to conclude. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. Um, it's just a wonderful catechism, overlooked and forgotten because of the Westminster Catechism, which is, is more popular and, and better known. When you read the Heidelberg Catechism, what you see is that the tone is very different to the Westminster. It's far more pastoral. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is my only comfort in life and in death? What is my only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but that I belong to my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me, such that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I am his, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And he makes me ready and willing to live wholeheartedly for him from now on. I think that's one of the most glorious confessional truths that was ever written. And did you notice that it's predicated upon the doctrine of assurance? 
I mean, think even just what a catechism is. You're trying to instill knowledge, and it opens, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own? And the assumption is that you know this to be true, that I don't belong to me. And so it goes on. If you've come this morning and you don't think you're struggling with assurance, my encouragement is that we all need to strive to, as one commentator said, to bring Christ closer. We all have a responsibility to bring Christ closer. Because when Christ looms large, assurance abounds. And as we're faithful to pursue a larger view of Christ, understanding that assurance is a fruit of faith, and the very best thing we can do is to nurture our faith, and when we focus particularly on the doctrines that flow out of the cross of regeneration and justification and adoption and union with Christ, and when we understand that obedience is the friend of assurance, and if you're not living an obedient life, then assurance will quickly disappear, but yet obedience is not the parent of assurance, And when you're mindful that, yes, you have a particular set of circumstances around you, and yes, you have your own personality, and yes, you have a history, all of which might affect the level of assurance you enjoy, when you're mindful of the fact that our main role is not to change those things, but to simply nurture our faith through a sustained view of Christ on the cross, then over time, I trust that the Lord in his kindness will grant you increasing levels of assurance. And when we enjoy that, then we will know greater joy in worship, more intimacy in prayer, greater levels of humility in our fellowship, and more zeal in our service. I'm going to stick around for questions after. If you, I understand just you might have some questions of a personal nature. I want to be here. I'm not going to open up to Q&A now for that reason. So I close in prayer and then just enjoy fellowship with one another. Father, thank you so much for uh, First John um, and so many other passages that we could have been in this morning that teach us about assurance. We're so grateful for this blessing that's available to have a confidence and a certainty that we are in union with Christ, having been redeemed, saved, and we're destined for glory. And I do pray for all of us, without exception, that we would know and enjoy that blessing. It's available. Please, Father, work in our lives that we would enjoy high levels of assurance, that we would be disciplined to feed our faith, looking to Christ and his cross, pursuing obedient lives. And may it be to the praise of your glory. Amen.